Before we get into the show, a note that this episode contains descriptions of harmful situations that some people may find disturbing. Please take care while listening. I'm Dr. Noazi Nduque. And I'm Dr. Danielle Hairston. This is The Next 72 Hours. Welcome back to our season finale episode. This is part two. In part one, we discussed the case of Samuel Celestine and what happens when a 911 call for help for a loved one in crisis goes horribly wrong. Now, definitely go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. Next up, we'll be meeting Kevin Fisher from NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. He has a lot to say about alternatives to 911, crisis response team and crisis intervention team training, and how things can be improved. I am Kevin Fisher. My full-time job is the State Executive Director for NAMI Michigan, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I am also the President of CIT International, which is Crisis Intervention Team Training International. I am the CEO of EverybodyVersusStigma.com, and I wear many other hats here in the state of Michigan. I am based in the state of Michigan, just outside of metropolitan Detroit, and I just get around. We tend to be a very reactive society to mental health crisis. I think that's where the problem begins. We're reactive instead of proactive. So unfortunately, we tend to wait until crisis occurs, a behavioral health crisis, before we try to resolve it. And unfortunately, often that involves calling law enforcement or EMTs, or crisis response teams, or many other variables that are out there right now. Um, but primarily, people end up picking up the phone and calling 911, and you get a police response. Most of us call the police when we're afraid. Again, so most of us wait until we define crisis as fear for an individual or someone else's lives. That's typically when we call law enforcement during a behavioral health crisis. We fear somebody's gonna hurt themselves or others. That response or who you call can vary by your locale because now resources vary. If you call your local 911, they can triage that call the 911 operator and that operator can say, hey, if this is not a call that requires police intervention and armed response, and you have a, cri- a mobile crisis team or crisis response team, then they may dispatch that, you know, that uh, resource. But if you don't, then they're likely to dispatch police or EMT, depending on the level of threat. Now we have new resources coming, the new 988, uh, which is the mental health equivalent to 911 that is scheduled to launch in about a month, Um, but it will slowly roll out across the country. So the availability of the new 988 crisis response line may vary again by locale. So forgive me um, for (laughs) using that terminology over and over again, but that's just the reality of it. But most people simply aren't aware of what other resources are available in their community 
or how to access them. So that's why the police get called so often. Uh, here in the state of Michigan, I live in metropolitan Detroit. Frankly, I have many more resources available to me here than in some even suburban counties or rural counties. In rural counties in America, there are very scarce behavioral health care resources available. So, yeah, the police would catch 100% of their calls. The most common are suicidal ideation, danger to self or others. Uh, and then there's family members who call for help and say, for example, my wife may call and say, you know, uh, my husband is living with a mental health diagnosis. He's not taking his medication. He's acting erratically. I'm just calling for assistance to get him to help. Um, that is very common as well. So someone could just be calling for transport help. Like, can you help me to get this person to the hospital or to a behavioral health unit? Correct. So who makes up a mobile crisis team or a crisis intervention team or a crisis response team, a CRT teams? Who do we see when they come out? So let me let me explain what a crisis intervention team is first, because that's where I'm most familiar. Um, CIT or crisis intervention teams were developed actually by NAMI and the Memphis uh, Police Department and the University of Memphis back in 1989 after un two unfortunate incidents where two unarmed men, two separate situations were shot and killed by law enforcement. And both of those men were simply experiencing behavioral health crisis. And the local NAMI affiliate said, stop, there has to be a better answer. So from that, uh, the city of Memphis police, the University of Memphis and NAMI got together and created what we now call Crisis Intervention Team International, uh, which is a full 40 hour training where we teach law enforcement officers how to identify people who are experiencing behavioral health crisis, how to verbally de-escalate those situations and how to transport those individuals to help rather than to jail and to not harm them physically when at all when possible the the desire or the intent of the CIT the, what we refer to as the Memphis model is to provide care in the least intrusive most compassionate and most effective and efficient manner so we get people help and we don't hurt them and we don't criminalize the fact that they live with a behavioral health care diagnosis. Beyond that, the term CIT has been used in many, many ways. And so when you ask the question about what's the difference between CIT, crisis response team, mobile crisis teams, I hate saying it this way, but that can vary by community, too, because a lot of those terminologies are being interchanged differently. And it might mean something different in Washington, D.C. than it does in Detroit. Um, Co-responder models, for example, um, you've heard a lot in the last couple of years about law enforcement who now have uh, behavioral health care professionals who ride along with them. 
Um, you have the crisis mobile units or crisis response teams that are typically no law enforcement involved. They are behavioral health care professionals um, who are dispatched on calls where, again, the 911 operator, um, when they are triaging the call, says there's no imminent danger. Um, this is a person who's in crisis and they can be handled without law enforcement engagement. And then you have crisis response teams that are made up of sometimes medical professionals like EMTs and behavioral health care professionals as well. Again, no, no law enforcement um, directly involved, but it depends again on what resources are available in your community and how effectively and efficiently that call is triaged when it's received. So the risk of having a law enforcement officer respond is that that officer has a gun and a badge. And there is the possibility that yourself, your loved one, or the officer can be hurt. So to mitigate that risk, intervene as early as possible. Get help for yourself or your loved ones before that becomes necessary. Far too often, we, um, we have an unrealistic expectation of law enforcement. They are an armed response. So whenever you can eliminate them, you want to. That is the safest way. Um, because the risk is you called someone who has a badge and a gun out to intervene on your behalf. And once you introduce that, there is no absolute that no one's going to be hurt. And I, I want to add this to um, Dr. Harrison, where crisis intervention team training, the Memphis model, because there are many models out there. Um, and so I want to be really clear. There's data out there that shows that when the Memphis model of crisis intervention team training has been utilized, it has reduced the injury to law enforcement officers and civilians by up to 80%. So it is a truly effective program when properly utilized. Again, most law enforcement officers don't receive anywhere close to sufficient behavioral health crisis training in the academy. So there are those who don't believe, quite honestly, in the CIT model. They don't believe in crisis uh, intervention team training. They don't believe in crisis response teams. They believe I am a law enforcement officer. And if you call me, it is more likely that somebody's going to go to jail. And when we are in the process of recruiting CIT trained officers, we want those who volunteer, not those who've been voluntold, because not everybody has the right mentality or capacity to be a crisis response officer. So, for example, when we're asked how many or what percentage of a law enforcement agency should be CIT trained, we say a minimum of 25%, but enough that every shift 
has a sufficient amount of crisis response team trained officers on duty. So whether a call comes in at midnight or two o'clock in the afternoon, you have a trained officer who's qualified to come in and intervene again in the most compassionate, most humane, least intrusive manner possible. Well, Mr. Fisher, why shouldn't it be 100%? Great question. And the answer is very simple. Because 100% won't buy into it. There are some people who just simply will not change. There are some officers who uh, consider themselves hook them and book them officers. I'm a law enforcement officer. You call me out, somebody's going to jail. There are some officers who believe that crisis response team training is a kind of a flavor of the month program that they simply don't buy into. It's not necessarily with malicious intent, but we don't want those officers to be considered CIT officers. And of course, in a utopia, it would be great if every officer had the right mindset. Unfortunately, they don't. And those are not the people we want responding to those calls. If you're not dedicated to this process, if you don't believe in being that compassionate, least intrusive response, we don't want you on scene because those are people who can make those calls go badly and somebody get hurt. The goals of a CIT program is, again, to ultimately get people help, not criminalize their behavioral health disorder. Unfortunately, our jails and prisons have become the de facto mental health treatment facilities. For example, in the state of Michigan, the Wayne County Jail, which encompasses most of Detroit, is considered the state's largest mental health treatment facility. But that's not just in Michigan, because if you go to Ohio, it's the Cuyahoga County Jail. And if you go to California, it's the Los Angeles County Jail. If you go to Illinois, it's the Cook County Jail, and so on. The truth is no one's really getting effective behavioral health care treatment in an incarcerated situation, whether it's a local jail or prison. And the other side of that is incarceration is the most expensive way to provide treatment. Uh, in Detroit, for example, the most recent study I recall shows that it is seven to 10 times more expensive to provide behavioral health care for a person in the Wayne County Jail than it is to provide treatment uh, on an outpatient basis through our community mental health system. One of the things that we have to get past, in, not only in the United States, but across the world, is one, we have to eliminate the stigma associated with mental illness because that is the leading barrier that prevents people from taking the first step to getting the help that they need, whether it's that individual or even family members, because some of us in our families, we don't want anybody to, we don't want our friends and neighbors and coworkers and the people we worship next to at church to know somebody in my family might have a mental health disorder. But when we start talking about improving the overall quality of life, not only for that individual and that family, but that for the community and actually saving lives. In the United States, the most recent statistics um, are from 2018 because they always run a few years back. 
But in 2018, on average, law enforcement shot and killed about a thousand people. 25% of those people are people with a diagnosed mental illness. Now there's even a greater percentage that were undiagnosed at the time. And then a third of that 25% are people of color. So when we intervene early, when we make better use of the resources that we have, and when we advocate for additional resources, we save lives, we improve the quality of life, we increase overall safety for everybody, and we do it in the most cost-effective manner. You know, deinstitutionalization, I know the thoughts behind it, like that people would do better out in the community, but then they didn't give people the community resources that they needed. So then we were led to a place of increased homelessness, um, people being incarcerated for vagrancy, um, petty theft, trespassing, things like that. Do we know if there's any impact on crime and arrests by engaging with CRTs? So the short answer is yes. And I will, I will use the, what we call the Miami-Dade project as an example. Um, there's a uh, judge, Steve Leifman, you may have heard of um, in Miami, Florida, through the use of programs like CIT, AOT, which is Assisted Outpatient Treatment, which is probate court order outpatient treatment for adults who don't realize their need for behavioral health care treatment. Um, through the use of specialty courts like mental health courts, veterans courts, those kinds of programs, those kind of resources were brought together. And long story short, in Miami-Dade County, they saved so much money by diverting people to these programs rather than sending them to jail. They saved 11 or $12 million, so much that they were able to close Miami's largest jail and convert it to a holistic behavioral health care center. Oh, wow, I did not know about that. So when you ask if there's benefit, absolutely. The shame is, there are over 17,000 law enforcement agencies in this country. Only about 4,000 utilize the CIT program. But again, where that has been utilized, the instance of injury to law enforcement officers and civilians has been reduced by up to 80%. That not only saves lives, but it saves, it improves the quality of life, it saves money, it helps local municipalities and there's less uh, injuries to officers and they're, they're not taking as much time off work. There's less lawsuits. 
Um, their bond ratings increase. I mean, there's so many savings and so many benefits to programs like CIT. It is amazing to me that they've not been better utilized. Now, one of the good things that's come out of the COVID pandemic is we're talking more and more about mental health and crisis response. Here's, here's the thing that I guess I want viewers to understand. At the end of the day, even with the CIT Memphis model, our goal is to ultimately eliminate law enforcement participation in crisis response calls. Again, we want to free law enforcement up to do law enforcement work. We want to reduce the opportunity for people who are experiencing behavioral health crisis be harmed. The best way to do that, again, is to eliminate law enforcement whenever possible. And that's why I go back to, I'm often asked, well, how do we, uh, how do we eliminate law enforcement? The biggest part or biggest opportunity I see is by earlier intervention. I'm a believer in control what you can control. And if I fear the need to call 911, if I fear the intervention of law enforcement, then do everything you possibly can. And I'm, I'm not trying to put all the responsibility on the family. I'm trying to be realistic. Early intervention is the absolute best thing we can do to ensure the safety of ourselves and our loved ones. And it's the most compassionate and least intrusive way to do that. We have to get past the stigma associated with behavioral health disorders because that's the barrier. That's what prevents us from making the call. We tend to say, again, using myself as an example, I know dad's not taking his medication. I know he's not acting quite himself, but we tend to ignore it and just hope it gets better. Mental illness is a medical diagnosis. And like any other illness, if you ignore it, it is likely to just get worse. So let's stop ignoring it. Let's eliminate the stigma. You know, we say one in five uh, adults, one in six children are affected by a mental health crisis each year. That's somewhere between 65 and 80 million people. CIT, part of it is designed to destigmatize mental illness. It is to encourage individuals and family members of loved ones to intervene earlier and get them the help that we need. So if we want to, I absolutely understand why people would be reluctant to call law enforcement. So let's do everything we can in our power. And it's not an absolute. Unfortunately, we're not going to get 100 percent, but let's at least make the effort. We can significantly reduce the um, the involvement of law enforcement if we're proactive instead of reactive. So you're saying if I notice my family member, a loved one friend is not engaging or hasn't been taking meds or doesn't seem like themselves before it's a crisis, then I should be calling. Who should I be calling? Call your, call your local behavioral health professional. Um, many of us, I don't know what they call it in DC, but we have community mental health 
in the state of Michigan. Um, that is the public safety net. And they will triage those calls and determine, uh, because unfortunately, there has to be an evaluation or kind of a triaging of what's your insurance situation. So are you Medicaid eligible? Do you have private insurance? Unfortunately, um, again, I'll use the state of Michigan as an example. We are a Medicaid funded program, which means you have to meet either certain income guidelines or your mental illness has to be severe and persistent rather than mild to moderate. I hate that we have to go through that, but the good news is that's where you can make the first call. Instead of calling the police, in Michigan, you can call the local community mental health office. They will tell you, again, based on your insurance status and all of those other factors, this is where you can get treatment. And the other really cool thing um, I guess I should mention is um, Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan and Senator um, oh, Roy Blunt of Missouri created something called Certified Community Behavioral Health Care Clinics, or CCBHC. Absolute game changer in this country for accessing behavioral health care. They are federally funded where you can walk into any one of those certified community behavioral health clinics and they will provide treatment to you regardless of the severity of your diagnosis, regardless of your insurance status, and regardless of your ability to pay. So we have resources, again, that most people are unaware of because there are all of these barriers. There's stigma, and then there are people who won't seek treatment because they fear they won't be able to afford it. So again, we have resources that most people simply aren't aware of. But all of that allows us to intervene early and keep law enforcement away from our door. I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but have you ever heard of a hospital having or being on a psych advisory or a psych divert or psych diversion advisories? And that's where hospitals say, we're not accepting any psych patients. Like we can't take any psych patients at this time. Like we have too many issues. So unfortunately, not every hospital has a psychiatric ward. There are also not only hospitals, there are providers that may refuse service because this case is too complex. Um, this person's mental illness may come with um, some risk of injury. You know, some people act out violently. Um, there are unfortunately many reasons that you can be turned away. There are far too many cases in the United States where, first of all, emergency rooms are being used as psychiatric uh, facilities. They're not qualified and they will turn you away as soon as they realize that you don't have a physical injury and that your condition is behavioral health care related. Yes, they will turn you away. Uh, and I think that's a shame, but that's the reality. You already talked about this a little bit, but I think people don't know. And I actually just learned about 988 myself recently. Can you tell us what you know about 988? Is it only for suicide prevention or what is 988? You know, I was so I sit on the state suicide prevention commission uh, here in Michigan and I was actually at a meeting earlier today. 
One of my concerns about the new 988 is that initially it was marketed as a replacement to the suicide prevention hotline. But the true resources behind that is not just suicide prevention. There are proactive uh, behavioral health care resources. You can call if you know someone who may not doesn't necessarily need to be in crisis, just a person who needs behavioral health care resources. That is a part of the 988 system. The problem we have in this country is we are reactive and we're, we market it as a crisis response, which unfortunately leads people again to believe you wait until someone is in crisis before you get them help. We need to be proactive. So 988 has some great benefits to it. And my understanding is that SAMHSA um, and the states are going to change the marketing messaging to remind people that there are uh, behavioral health care resources it included that are not just crisis response or suicide prevention. My concern with that is we're doing it too late. Um, that should have been communicated on the front end and not after the fact. Gotcha. So, Mr. Fisher, I'm sure you've heard or you know that a lot of voicemails for psychiatrists and therapists, their message, their outgoing message says, if this is an emergency, if you're in crisis, hang up and call 911. What should it say instead? Or should it still say that? You know, unfortunately, I believe it's still appropriate for it to say that because that's a reality. Uh, again, it's, it's because of the way we've been conditioned. When we tend to call a behavioral health care professional, it's typically when someone's in crisis, when we're concerned about their safety or safety of people around them. So, yeah, that's still appropriate. I think as a whole, we need to change the culture of how we view mental illness, not only in the United States, but globally. We need to encourage people to treat any behavioral health challenge like any other physical injury. We would have no issue. You'd have no concern if you or a loved one was experiencing shortness of breath or uh, you know, bleeding or something, you'd have absolutely no issue taking them to a uh, urgent care or call your primary care physician. We have to look at behavioral health care the very same way. Intervene early, early intervention leads to better outcomes. Cancer diagnosis at stage one has a lot better prognosis than being diagnosed at stage four. Same thing with mental illness. And then the fact is, again, getting away from the stigma of mental illness, mental illness is, again, a medical diagnosis. There are certain illnesses that you or I can experience that will require hospitalization. If I have a heart attack, I'm going to the hospital and nobody's going to be ashamed of that. And depending on the severity of it, I may have to remain hospitalized for a while. 
I may have to be on put on medication. I may have to go to physical therapy. Same thing with mental illness. There are some forms of mental illness that are so serious that it requires hospitalization. There are some forms of mental illness that require medication. There are some forms of mental illness where you can get uh, go to therapy and learn coping skills and not have to be hospitalized. We have to eliminate the stigma associated with mental illness. That's how we get to the best outcomes. That's where it's most efficient, most compassionate, and most cost-effective all around. I like that analogy across the board. Um, so, Mr. Fisher, what is your experience with mental health diagnoses, personal mental health, or so you'll see I don't say mental illness, but, but personal mental health diagnoses? My experience is I'm a retired businessman. I am not a mental health professional. I'm not a psychiatrist or social worker. Um, my oldest son, Dominique, was diagnosed with serious mental illness in 2007. Um, he was diagnosed uh, bipolar, schizophrenic, and it came as a complete surprise to our family. He was a sophomore away at college. Um, prior to that, we had seen no symptoms or evidence of mental illness. Um, All-American kid. Um, Good student, good social skills, um, student athlete, came home and uh, for Thanksgiving break 2007 and was rambling about taking over the world and God worked for him um, and just all of these grandiose thoughts. And unfortunately, his mom and I assumed that maybe he went off to school and experimented with drugs. So we took him to a local hospital to be drug tested. And after a lengthy exam, the doctors explained to us there were no drugs or alcohol in his system and that they were putting him on a 72-hour psych hold. Uh, his initial diagnosis was schizophrenia, and several months later, they added the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. We learned very quickly we knew nothing about mental illness. We knew nothing about the behavioral health care system. We knew nothing about treatment plans. We had no idea what his life was going to look like going forward. And we fumbled through the behavioral health care system trying to figure it out. Very long story short, um, unfortunately, uh, in early 2010, my son stopped participating in his treatment plan and, and I thought he was doing quite well. I quit my job became his full-time caretaker. And um, he was going to treatment four days a week and taking his medication. And he started doing so well, two things intervened. One, he, um, we learned what stigma was about. Uh, he didn't want his family and friends to know that he was diagnosed with a mental illness. And he didn't want to take, he didn't want anybody to know he was taking medication. So he stopped taking his prescription medication and started self-medicating with marijuana and alcohol. He also tried to convince me that he was doing so well, but I don't even need the medication anymore. I've got this. I got it under control. Unfortunately, on June 27th of 2010, about three months after he stopped taking his medication, we lost him to suicide.
Oh no. I was not expecting this part of the story. I'm sorry. No, thank you. So I'm about a week away from the 12th anniversary of his passing. It didn't need to happen, obviously. Um, I wish I knew more and understood more. And over the last 10 years that I've been a mental health advocate, I've learned so much and I can go back and look at things like the value of CIT program. But I'll give you a really quick example. Dominique attended uh, John Carroll University just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And um, even though I grew up in the city, um, my kids were raised in the suburbs. And I taught my kids that law enforcement is there to help you. They're supposed to serve and protect. And I grew, even though I grew up in the city, my next door neighbor was a policeman. Next door neighbor to him was a policeman. Neighbor across the street was a policeman. So I grew up around cops um, and great respect for them. Dominique was in the midst of a behavioral health crisis. Um, one day he uh, lived off, he was walking from his off-campus house um, toward campus. And the University Heights Police Department, which is where the uh, John Carroll University is, was executing a routine traffic stop. Had nothing to do with him. They pulled somebody over for a traffic violation. Dominique knew that he was in crisis. So while they were at the car they had pulled over, Dominique walked up to the patrol car, opened the door and got in and sat there because police are supposed to help me. And what happened now, you know, and I can tell by the look on your face that could have gone wrong so many ways. You don't just get in, sit in a police car. But those officers and I don't know to this day if they were CIT trained or not. What I do know is that they were professional and compassionate. They called me. They took him to a local emergency room because that's what they knew at the time. Uh, we didn't have these crisis centers and things that we tools we have available now. They took him to the local hospital. They called me and said, Mr. Fisher, you know, this is officer so-and-so from the university police department. We transported your son to the local emergency room. They explained to me that he had not broken any laws and that he was not under arrest, um, but they transported him because they knew he was experiencing a mental health crisis. They even explained to me for his safety and ours, we did handcuff him and put him in the car, but explained, and they had not injured him at all. And knowing nothing, this happened in 2009, so knowing nothing then that I know now, I was so grateful that I wrote a letter of thanks to the police chief. And I said, thank you, because your officers could have hurt my son. About a year later, uh, my son had gone to treatment and his doctors agreed that he, we should let him go back to school. It was a part of his recovery plan. He was doing really well. And he went back to school. He stopped taking his medication because he didn't want his friends to know. And the voices in his head told him to go to a Cleveland Browns football game at five o'clock in the morning. Problem is, it was a Monday night game that didn't begin until nine o'clock in the evening. So for whatever reason, he caught the bus to downtown Cleveland to the stadium, didn't have any other money with him. And at some point in the day, he got hungry and he was accused of taking a hamburger or hot dog off a tailgater's grill. 
They called the Cleveland police. My son was ultimately arrested and charged with being uh, drunk and disorderly and resisting arrest. Well, he wasn't drunk. He was in the midst of a psychotic episode. And when I asked him about the resisting arrest, the first thing he said to me was, he said, Dad, they rushed me. And so you know that when a person is experiencing a mental health crisis, they are not in their rational mind. His perception, and here again, this is not law enforcement who are de-escalating. Most law enforcement officers are trained to escalate. That's how they gain control of situations. Freeze, put your hands up, do this, do that. Well, his fight or flight kicked in and he saw them as a threat. So he said, I was trying to get away from somebody who I thought was going to hurt me. He wasn't being disrespectful or combative. But um, let's just say the officers went hands on. Uh, when I saw my son in the Cuyahoga County Jail three days later, he still had a split lip. And um, so that for me, that's the I call that a tale of two cities. That's the difference in having a CIT trained officer and not. Um, and again, I don't know that the University Heights police were CIT trained at the time, but they received some kind of training or that officer had enough compassion and professionalism to not hurt him, but to take him to get help instead of taking him to jail and taking him by force. So that's my lived experience. But I, I'll add this, you know, when I lost my son in 2010, Shortly after I started experiencing suicidal thoughts of my own and quite honestly, I planned my suicide. Um, I didn't manage the grief uh, and depression well at all. Uh, I had gone to individual therapy and I joined uh, a support group for parents who lost children and I did the things that I thought I needed to do. But I found myself just sinking deeper into this depression and this black hole. And I got to a point where I said, you know, God, if you can't relieve me of this emotional pain, I have to because I can't do this every day. And so I literally came within hours of taking my own life about a year. As a matter of fact, exactly on the year anniversary of Dominique's passing, I planned to go to his gravesite, and I didn't plan to come back. Um, I was very blessed that my current wife, because I remarried, um, went with me that day and would not allow me to be alone. And normally I visit my son's uh, gravesite alone, but on that day she said, no, I'm not going to allow you to be alone. And so she went with me not knowing that I had a loaded gun in the small of my back and I had gotten my affairs in order and I went to the lawyer and drew up, you know, had my will and everything drawn up. And I just didn't think I'd take it anymore. But my wife, actually found NAMI for me. Uh, she did not know that I was suicidal. She didn't, she didn't learn of this until probably two or three years later when she heard me uh, giving a presentation. It was the first time I had disclosed it publicly. But she is insightful enough to say, if therapy wasn't working for you, maybe helping others will help you. So NAMI was a great introduction for me, um, and I, I learned a lot, and one thing led to another. I joined NAMI in 2011, 
2014, I became the state executive director by chance. Um, it wasn't my plan. Um, the, the organization needed a new director and I volunteered to do it on an interim basis for $1 a month. And nine years later, I'm still here. <laughs> so well, hopefully for more than $1 a month. Yeah. Yeah. I get paid a little more than a buck a month now. <laughs> But anyway, that's that's my lived experience. Professor, that is a tremendous story. Well, but that's why CIT is so important to me because I know I've experienced what the difference can be. Um, yeah. And that's why I am such a believer in eliminating stigma. Um, I tell people very openly, though my son died by suicide, stigma killed my son. Dominique was doing fine until he heard the whispers amongst family and friends that ain't nothing wrong with that boy. He don't need to be taking medication. He just needs to focus harder. He needs to pull himself up by his bootstraps. When you have voices in your head telling you that God works for you, you're way past bootstraps. Right. And we've heard this too many times yeah. in our community. Yeah, and, and, and it happens to it happens in every community, but in particular communities of color. We know in the African American community it's hard enough to get us to go get an annual physical. Mental health care, and I always look to you remember the movie Soul Food? Um, and they had the character Uncle Pete that they kept in the back room at Big Mama's house. Mm -hmm. That's how we deal with mental illness in our community. More often than not. We don't want anybody to know. Uh, we we try to make sure he's safe and he's fed and he's not out in the, in the community getting in trouble. But we didn't get Uncle Pete any help. And in doing that, not only did we deny Uncle Pete his best quality of life, I see this a lot in my work. I have a lot of elderly parents that are that are caring for their mentally ill adult children and they're robbed yeah, of their so. quality of life, too. We have to really think about like what led to the stigma, like a history of mistrust from the medical system, from psychiatry, from how do you survive slavery by not expressing what's going on. We got to go back hundreds of years to address how we got to this place. Like, well, you can't work or you can't own a home. You can't be in a relationship. You can't have a family. If you're a black woman with a mental illness, you can't have your children. They're gonna take them away. Are you gonna be? There's gonna be forced sterilization. We had an episode about that earlier in the season. Um, so there's a lot with the stigma when we think about all the generational trauma that led to that. We think about all the social implications and all um, the structures that have allowed for the stigma to be perpetuated and somehow sometimes you know playing into the stigma has allowed people to survive so how can we change that now yeah and, and we know you know i think you're absolutely right we have to look historically at how we got here and we also have to look at where we are today because you know we look at the racial disparities and how people of color are treated when we do seek help um, we're, we're overdiagnosed, um, we are marginalized, we're talked at instead of talked to, you know, in, in the advocacy community, we talk a lot about self-determination and person-centered planning 
And there's data out there that says when an African-American goes either to their, let's say, primary care physician or a behavioral health professional, we are 33% more likely to be talked at instead of engaged with and say, you know, Kevin, what do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? You know, we know that the vast majority of people, when we intervene early and people get proper diagnosis and treatment, many go on to live very productive, very fulfilling lives. Um, one of my taglines is recovery is possible. And people say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean you're cured? No, but people go on to live, we say their best life. Um, and so, yeah, we have, we have plenty of reason to distrust. Um, and that's why we need more behavioral health care professionals that look like you. Um, you know, we, we, need, we need to find a way to get that trust. And if that means from people who look like us, then we need to encourage more people of color um, to pursue this field as a profession. But we got to get there because there, to me, and there's no, nothing scientific behind this, we are doing more harm by not engaging in care than, and I understand the whys, but we got to find a way to get past it so we can take care of ourselves because nobody's going to save us but us. That's a word, Mr. Fisher. Nobody's going to save us but us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being here. Thank you for telling your story and for telling the story of your son. We appreciate you. We are incredibly indebted to you and thank you for this. All right, listeners, we're at the end. We're at the end of season one. Thank you for your support. Thank you for sticking with us from episode one all the way to the end of this season. We will be back. We will be back for Yes, season two, we're coming back. We are coming back with more stories, with more facts, with more cases. If you have a story that needs to be heard, if you need to tell your story, please email us at 72hourspod at gmail.com. That's the number 72hourspod at gmail.com. We will be looking out for your stories. We're ready for you to be included and the stories to be included in season two. We will be back. I'm Dr. Danielle Hairston. And I'm Dr. Noazian Dukeway. And this is the Next 72 Hours Podcast.